Let us pray. O God, our Father, we thank thee for the privilege of giving for the work of thy kingdom. We ask that the Holy Spirit shall guide these gifts to the end that they shall bring honor unto thy name. And we pray that thou wilt enable us not only to give these tokens of our possessions, but to lay ourselves all together at thy disposal once again through this act of giving. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we compensate as years go by for mistakes that we make sometimes by going to other extremes. In my library, I have um, a set of dictionaries that to my wife's great consternation cost me $200. It's called an Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. It's the living end of all dictionaries. It's the quintessence. Beyond it is sheer blank annihilation. You cannot get a bigger dictionary. Now, the reason that I have this dictionary is that I often made mistakes and still do in the use of words. And one of the most painful memories of a misuse of words came when I was a freshman in high school. Our church organist was Peggy Berry. Peggy was pretty, and she was Raymond Berry, the gay, great end of the Baltimore Colts sister. Peggy played the organ, and I liked Peggy very much, but uh, I wasn't in love with her or anything, but I liked her a whole lot, and it's a time of the year when they pass out these school yearbooks, you always try to think of something very dramatic to write in, and I wanted to write something very complimentary to Peggy, and I wanted her to know about how devoted I was uh, to her. And so I signed it after I'd written a description that was a very gentle description. I signed it passionately yours. And she turned red in the face, and I didn't know why. I thought it was a perfectly good word, and it was years ago. It was an excellent word. In fact, in 1603, uh, it, was a, it was one of the greatest words that the King James translators could use in their translation of the... A Bible. They had started, you remember in 1603, there were a lot of interesting things that were taking place. Uh, Shakespeare and Bacon and Spencer were making a lot of uh, wonderful improvements in our literary understanding. And then Sir Walter Raleigh had established some colonies over here, and Drake had made great discoveries on the ocean. Then by 1604, uh, King James got the idea that it would be a wonderful thing to have a new translation of the Bible and get all the existing translations together. He uh, convened good scholars. Lancelot Andrews was among them. He was his chaplain, and asked them to, to translate the scriptures. And so when these translators began to work, they finally released their work in 1611. But as they began to work, they worked on the epistle of James. And as they began to work through this epistle, and they came to James' description about prayer, and James' description about Elijah, they use this word passions, that Elijah was a man of like passions such as we are. And the only other time in the New Testament that the word is used exactly in this same way, it's only twice in the New Testament, the other time is in the 14th chapter of Acts, when Barnabas and Paul had uh, healed a crippled man at Lystra. And the people promptly fell down and began to worship them to the horror of Paul and Barnabas as though Paul and Barnabas were some kind of gods. In fact, they wanted to call uh, Paul Juniper and Barnabas, I believe, Mercury. And they said, no, don't do this. We are men of like passions such as you are. Now, what the King James translators were trying to work out of this like passions is that there are powerful feelings that move through us, feelings of hate, feelings of hope, feelings of fear, feelings of anger, feelings of despair, feelings of great exhilaration. And when one is in a fit or possessed in an outburst of such excited feelings, he was spoken of in those days as being in a passion. And so it was perfectly natural for James, and James was one of the greatest, 
And if you want to know what to do in a week of reconciliation, or in a week in which you're seeking a revival on your campus, there's not a better place in the Bible to read than the book of James. James really tells it like it is. He is the one who says, will the real phony please stand up? And when James begins his letter, he writes to persecuted Christians, giving them counsel. But he always is pointing out something that was very much like what Elijah would point out. He points out that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And he says to these earliest Christians what he would say to these Christians of the 1970s, that no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will love one and cling to the, and despise the other. And so James speaks to us. Your prayers can't even be answered, says James, if you're double-minded. And then James gives a lot of interesting things. He says if, uh, if you're happy, then you ought to sing hymns of praise to God. He says if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Tell them to anoint you with oil and pray for you. God will give you recovery. James says a lot of things we ignore. He says confess your sins to one another. Confess your faults to one another. That would really whittle us down to size, wouldn't it? If we did confess our faults to one another. If we just went to all the people in this sanctuary, wherever we thought there was some fault, and we confessed our faults and they confessed theirs to us. Not just sins in general, but things that affect our relationships with each other. Well, James says to do this. And then these King James translators, and by the way, they, they did an excellent job here. They said back in 1604 or 5, when they were working on James, I don't know what year they got to translating this epistle. They said James prayed, they said Elijah, excuse me, they said Elijah prayed in all of his prayer. Now, isn't that a strange thing to say? Elijah prayed in all of his prayers. Do we really pray in all of our prayers? Or do we just say prayers and do not pray prayers? Well, all of the Jews looked up to Elijah enormously. You remember when Jesus said, Who do the sons of men say that I, the son of man, am? Right away, someone said, Thou art Elijah, because there was something powerful about his speech and dramatic about his work that caused these people to think automatically of their great hero, Elijah. And when Jesus was nailed on the cross, and he cried out to God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, two of the soldiers and some other people were standing there, and they said, what's he saying? And one of them said, he's calling for Elijah. You see, Elijah was in their brains all the time. They were thinking about Elijah. And so, so much did they think about Elijah that James has to warn these Christians who were suffering persecutions that Elijah was really a man of like passions such as we are. A man of like passions such as we are. And yet the important thing to remember, says James, is that God heard his prayer. Elijah lived in a time of terrible spiritual declension. And he stood before God in prayer. The Hebrew, when he prayed, stood before God and he muttered his prayers out loud. And Elijah prayed in all of his prayers with great intensity and sincerity, something that would put us to shame. It's funny that we try to fake it with God, the one person that we really could never deceive. Well, Elijah prayed. Standing in the presence of God, he learned something. He learned that because his people had turned away from God, that God would send a fearful judgment on the land. And the judgment would take the form of a horrendous drought. The heavens would turn to brass. 
and the sun would be glaring and blazing day after day until the earth was as dry as a potsherd and brown like iron and the people suffered desperately. Elijah had warned that the people who claimed that they knew God could not go whoring after other gods. He said this in powerful language, and yet they lusted after other gods. They went after them. Jezebel. Jezebel had married the king who was supposed to be king over God's people, the wicked Ahab. She fed these priests of immorality at her own table. And so Elijah challenges what has gone on in the land. And in the midst of that drought, one day he suddenly comes out of the desert. And Obadiah, one of the prophets, sees him. Word gets back to Ahab. And Ahab knows who this man is. This is Elijah. Elijah, God's great, powerful prophet who denounces sin. And Ahab hates his soul. When Ahab sees Elijah, he says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah says to him, No, I don't trouble Israel. But he says, You do, and your prophets of Baal do. And your sin has turned this land to iron, and these skies hot. You have done this by your immoralities and by turning away from God. This is what Elijah the prophet says in his passion, in his great rage of passion and indignation against the evil that existed in the land. And so he called for a great duel, what Peter Marshall used to call a duel of prayer at 20 paces. He asked that all of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the groves, to meet him at Mount Carmel. And there you know the story that I read to you a while ago. How God spoke through Elijah to these people and said what James says to the Christians. Don't be double-minded, says James, your prayers won't be answered. A double-minded man is like a wave that's tossed back and forth with the winds. Elijah says, how long do you limp along with two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. This is what Elijah said. This is what James says. This is what Jesus says. And yet look at the church today. One year God is dead. The next year God is alive. The next year you believe the Bible. The next year you don't believe the Bible. One year it's the new morality. The next year it's the old morality. The next year it's no morality. Buffeted back and forth with every wind of teaching and doctrine. Doctrine running to the bookstore to see what the latest theologian has said so we'll know what to believe that week. People join the church on confusion of faith more than confession of faith. And so here the prophet speaks, Elijah does. He speaks with all of his soul. He speaks in great power, demanding of these people a decision. And then when he prays, God answers. God answers that prayer. And James, harking back to this, tells us that when we pray for revival, and I wonder if you've ever noticed in reading this passage from the Old Testament that the first thing this man did was rebuild the altar. An altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is a place of prayer. And if God seems dead or far away or unreal, Maybe we ought to go back to the altar and see what sacrifice we're making and how much we're praying, and if we are praying, how real our prayers are. This is what Elijah did. He rebuilt the altar. He rebuilt the place of prayer. He rebuilt the place of sacrifice, and then in sincerity he called upon God, and the power of God was demonstrated. 
Elijah was a man of like passions, such as we are. His passion of scorn and contempt at these priests of Baal, he mocks them. His passion of fury, he wanted to exterminate evil from the land, not coexist with it. And then his great passion in prayer. There is a man in our denomination that I want to preach some Sunday here. His name is Andy Jumper. He had a fantastic experience of really getting converted just a few years ago after having been in the ministry a long time and having been the author of some very valuable and important books which we as officers of the church study. One day I was discussing this with Andy Jumper and he told me one of the incidents that caused him to begin to awaken. You know what it was? It had to do with prayer, passion in prayer. He said that some avant-garde friends of his, a woman with a master's degree in religious education, a director employed by a church as a director of Christian education, was sick. She had to have an operation. He went by the hospital as the pastor, the minister, to call on her, and when he got ready to leave, he called her name and he said, let's have a prayer. She laughed and she said, oh, Andy, don't hand me that stuff. You don't really believe that, do you? And Andy said when he walked out of the room, his head was swimming, and he walked down the corridor of the hospital thinking, oh, God, what kind of fake am I? What's happening in our church? What's happening to me? This caused him to do some great soul searching. Do we really pray in our prayers? If you take this Bible and you read it, you'll see that Moses prayed in his prayers. He prayed so hard that he told God, he said, God, if you're going to destroy these people, just kill me with them. I have brought them out here in this desert. Now, if you're going to destroy them, destroy me. Read about Jacob. The description there is that he wrestled with an angel. Did you ever wrestle in prayer? Really wrestle in prayer? Haul out all of your sins, ugly, stinking sins, one by one, and confess them to God? Wrestling with him, asking him to change you? Jacob limped for the rest of his life. He claimed that his thigh was broken from wrestling with an angel who touched him that night. He had been a crook, a con artist of the nth magnitude, a liar, and God changed him through wrestling in prayer. Read about Hannah. Hannah. Hannah prayed one day on the steps of the temple with such fervor and such passion that Eli came out of the temple and saw her and said, get this drunk away from you. He said, what do you mean being drunk right here at the temple of God? Did you ever pray so hard that if someone had seen you there that said you were drunk? Hannah did, and God answered her prayer. God answered her prayer. Ezra prayed like that. You ever read the book of Ezra? Ezra prayed like that, and when he read the scriptures to the people, they wept sore. They wept sore. They were very emotional. He prayed like that. Jesus prayed that way. He looked out over the city of Jerusalem one time, and he prayed and wept tears for that city. Did you ever weep tears for a city that was troubled with racial strife? You ever weep tears for America because of the immoralities that exist and what's happening to our country now? Weep tears for a school, for a family, for yourself, in your prayers, in a passion? Jesus did. Paul did. Read the 20th chapter of Acts and read how he spoke to his church officers, the elders in Ephesus. How three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. What did he warn them? He had talked to them about repentance.
toward God and faith toward Christ Jesus. And he talked to them about the judgment to come. You don't hear anything about judgment anymore. In fact, you'd have to be a real theological genius to figure out how to get into hell now. But this prophet preached, and James says he, he prayed in all of his prayers. James says that we ought to pray in all of our prayers. Maybe we would see some sick people healed if we prayed that way. I never shall forget, I shouldn't tell this, I'll probably get fired. I, um, I went out one time to speak at Oral Roberts University. And uh, he took me, his, he was very nice, I liked him. We, we went um, to his house, his wife cooked supper. I remember we had scrambled eggs and bacon or something. And uh, he had some notes on a telephone table, and he said to me, will you go to the hospital with me? And I thought, uh-oh, this is trouble. I told him when we got to the hospital, I said, oh, I have enough trouble just being a conservative in the Presbyterian Church without getting caught in the hospital with you praying for someone. And uh, he went in the hospital, and he saw some sick people. That's the difference. He was thinking about sick people, and I was thinking about me. And I was very touched with the way he prayed for people. Now, my wife says I always turn him off on television because I want to like him, and I won't like him if I watch him. And maybe she's right. But I was touched by the fact that he tried, and he prayed, and he prayed hard. And it was a rebuke to me. I don't believe like he believes. I've never spoken in tongues, and I don't have any desire to speak in tongues. I've got enough trouble with the one tongue i got. But I was touched by this man's fervor and by his tenderness in praying for people that other people might not pray for with such earnestness. And that passion, again, is what moved me. And I wonder how much real passion we show like this in our prayers. We're afraid to, I expect. We're afraid to really demonstrate that contact with God there. Not that this opens the door always to a life that is not touched with troubles or sadness. This man, Elijah, when it says he was li of like passion, after this great victory at Mount Carmel, the next time you see Elijah, he's under a juniper tree asking God to take away his life. He was a very powerful figure while he was up there preaching. And then when he was finished with his sermon and the great victory had come, and Jezebel sent word that she was going to kill him. It scared the wits out of him, and he ran across the desert and found a place that he could hide. And he just prayed, Oh, God, take away my life. I'm the only true believer left in the whole wide world. But he was mistaken on two counts. He wasn't the, was not the only true believer. There were 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And in his passion again, a passion of despair, he had misjudged the power and the presence of God amongst his people there. Elijah was a man of like passions, such as we are, and yet he prayed in all of his prayers, and God heard him. wonder what would happen if we prayed for a revival this week with Tom Skinner. I wonder what would happen if we prayed with all of our hearts, confessing our sins, seeking what there was in us that kept the blessing of God away. When we go to prayer, we so often pray for God to change the other person. And we so seldom pray for God to change us. This happens all the time with husbands and wives. The wives pray, oh, God, change my husband, make him better, and help him not to do this, and so on. And the husband is praying, oh, God, change my wife, and help her not to do this. We ought to pray for each other. Maybe if we prayed that God would make us the person that we ought to be, the other person would change. This is often the case. It's very often the case. Elijah prayed in all of his prayers. 
And you know, this kind of prayer has its benefits too. It's an honest type of prayer. St. Teresa would do you all good to read. Great Roman Catholic saint. And I love one line from her diary. In one of her prayers, you know what she prays? She says to God, she says, Oh God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have any more followers than you've got. That's what she prays when she looks at herself and how she's being treated. But she was honest. And all these people are honest before God. Jeremiah wished that he never had been born. Job was always talking about that. And you see this great honesty that crops up in prayer. And yet from this honesty and this true dedication, instead of being fake and formal and without any power in it, you see lives transformed and changed and great works done for God. Let me close by reading you a letter. It's an old letter written back in the third century by a man by the name of Cyprian to a friend. This is what he says. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed with some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. I would see bandits on the highways, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheater, men are murdered to please applauding crowds. Under all roofs, there is misery and selfishness. It's really a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of this sinful world. They are despised and persecuted and yet they do not care. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I have become one of them. Let us stand in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that our hearts are all naked and open unto thee, that we are vulnerable in thy presence because there is not within any of us the capability of deceiving thee. Forgive us for the stupidity that has sometimes caused us to try this. You know that our hearts need renewal. You know that our world needs reconciliation. And you know that the principal reason this reconciliation does not come is simply because we have tried to use you rather than to allow you to use us. Therefore, give us a passion for truth in thy presence, truth in thy presence that shall cause us to be able to see ourselves as we should and take courage and hope in your love and power to keep on transforming us so that we may be made into the people that we ought to be, true Christians who seek after holiness and show the love of Christ. Therefore, we pray that thou wilt send revival to our campus and into our homes and into our hearts. Our prayer we make in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.